So back in the British mandate in Palestine, in Eretz Yisrael, post-World War I, who's going to control the Jewish community? Is it going to be the Jewish agency? Is it going to be the religious community of Rav Kook, the religious Zionists? Or possibly Rav Chaim Zonenfeld and the Eid Haredes? And how are they going to each go ahead and convince the British authorities that they're the ones who truly represent the Jewish community's interests. Tonight, I'm going to go back in time a little bit to hear the story of how that took place. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Sound Bites Podcasts, and we're going to examine the life of a one of the strangest uh, people in recent Jewish history, um, quite a character. His name was Dr. Yaakov Yisrael Dehan, and his um, life, through his life, we see the ups and downs of the early years and the struggle for the identity of the Jewish community of the then Palestine Eretz Yisrael. Dehan was born in Holland. He was a Dutch Dehan, very Dutch name, and he's born into a from home in Holland in 1881, a large family, and he leaves religion at a young age. He becomes a Marxist, and which is not uncommon for Jews in those days, especially in Western Europe. Many were leaving the faith. He had a sister who became quite an accomplished author. She was a socialist. He's a Marxist, a social democrat in Holland. It's times of upheaval, revolutionaries. It's definitely not uh, unique in the fact that he chose that path. His father was a chazan, a shaykhid. They struggled. His father was, seems to have been quite a character himself. In any event, he goes to college. He was a brilliant fellow, very talented, very charismatic, very, very smart. And he um, becomes a lawyer. He's a writer. He's a poet. He was uh, an author, uh, a legal scholar. He becomes a professor at the, professor, excuse me, at the University of Amsterdam. Very accomplished. He knows a tremendous amount of languages. Um, even for someone of his time and location, Holland and Dutch people and Northern Europeans in general know quite a few more languages than, than uh, let's say, your average American. But even uh, by those standards, he was quite a linguist. And he was a very accomplished personality. He wrote his doctorate for the University of Amsterdam receives uh, the title doctor as a legal scholar, and he embarks on a um, diverse career as a author, journalist, poet, professor, and lawyer, all at the same time. He also dabbled as a human rights activist, he, um, and that eventually led towards a turning point in his life. Uh, Jacob Dehan, in 1912, goes to Russia, Tsarist Russia, where he's there to examine and do research on Russian prison conditions. And the Russian prison conditions during Tsarist times were definitely uh, far from ideal, to say the least. And uh, he was horrified by what he discovered. He also was exposed to the plight of the Jews of the Russian Empire, which was the majority, the bulk of the Jewish people at the time, especially in Europe, was the Jews, excuse me, in Tsarist Russia. And um, 
and he's exposed to their fate. He spends about two years in Russia doing this research into the Russian prison system, and he walks away with two conclusions. Number one, that there needs to be reform in the Russian prison system because it's simply cruel to keep prisoners like that. And number two, he understands the problem of anti-Semitism and he sees uh, Jewish life in a different way and he slowly returns to his Jewish roots, returns to his Jewish religion after many years of being secular and being a Western European intellectual and completely embracing the ideals and mores of Western European life he returns to his Jewish roots and becomes more religious. But he also became a somewhat of a human rights activist on the part of the prisoners. And interestingly enough, he embarks on a crusade almost to reform the prisons in Russia. And he tries to convince governments to employ diplomatic pressure on Tsarist Russia, allies of Russia, to, to, to reform the, the prisons there and... And in a time where human rights was not on the top of anyone's agenda, you know, in the post-war era, there was a lot of pressure um, from all types of human rights groups and in, in, uh, in, you know, the UN agencies and other agencies. And today there's quite a few of them all over the world, all Human Rights Watch and all kinds of things which I'm not even aware of, um, which today is quite common, trying to fight for human rights and prison reform and all kinds of things like that, and he actually was a pioneer in that, and he's uh, somewhat of a father in that respect as well. He really had an amazingly diver- diverse interest, and he, when he threw his energies into something, he he put his put it put it all in, and he had a lot of talent and a lot of energy and a lot of charisma. In any event, he he returns to his Jewish roots. He becomes he returns to religion. And he turns to Zionism. He says the, the way to solve the problem is to leave places like Tsarist Russia, to leave places like Western Europe where there's assimilation, excuse me, and he, to come to Israel. And he joins the religious Zionist movement and he makes plans to actually move to Israel. And he makes a big deal about his self-sacrifice. Um, uh, modesty uh, was definitely never one of his uh, primary character traits. And in a letter to Chaim Weitzman, who was the head of the Jewish agency, he writes that he's leaving everything behind in Holland and you know I'm a great poet and I'm a great author and I'm a great lawyer and I'm a great this and I'm a great that and I'm giving it all up because this is what I believe in. We have to come to Israel and I'm a big believer in Zionism now and he decides to come. He comes immediately after World War One. Now let's look at the context. The context immediately after World War One is that England had defeated the, the Turkish, the Ottoman Turkish Empire in World War One, and we're now standing in Israel. They were granted the mandate by the League of Nations to control the land of Israel. And it's the, the Treaty of Versailles is about to be signed in France between the, all the nations who had fought and the victors and the losers of World War I. Now, the British had made conflicting promises, and this is a, the basis of a lot of the issues in the Middle East till today, actually. And this is a, subject, a huge subject in itself, the British colonial... Uh, rulership and and their way of the British Empire carving up uh, countries that they left. And it's not only the cause of problems in the Middle East, it's the, the, the cause of the problems in a lot of places in the world. We're not only the British Empire, but the colonial imperial uh, powers, the way they divided up their uh, their empires. So the British had made conflicting promises. 
T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia, had organized the Arab revolt based on a British promise that if the Arabs would revolt against the Ottoman Turks, the British would promise them they, that they would fulfill their national aspirations in the Middle East and they would give them a national home. That was a promise they made through T.E. Lawrence to the Arabs of the Middle East. The question is to which Arabs of the Middle East? Was it the Arab, the Hashemite clan? Was it the, uh, the Ibn Saud clan? Was it uh, the, in Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, or other areas? That's also a question that hasn't, has yet to be solved. And the other promise they made was to the Jewish people. The Balfour Declaration was made by Lord Balfour to Lord Rothschild um, in England in 1917, uh, promising that they would make a national home in Palestine for the Jewish people. So now they have these conflicting promises, and everyone is trying to curry favor with the British and to, to try to get them to... Um, the Jews are trying to get allow them to get to not only to build their home but to allow unrestricted Jewish immigration to Palestine, while the Arabs have their national aspirations as well. And he comes into this milieu, and as a as a Zionist, but as a religious Zionist. Now, Rav Cook is the Rav of Yerushalayim at the time, and the chief rabbi eventually to be the chief rabbi of the entire Palestine. And he's a he's a follower of Rav Cook in the initial stage. Um, he is, uh, and he's trying to find his place in the Zionist enterprise. And being that he's a man who feels like he has so much to offer, so much to contribute, and so much to give as a, as, with all his talents and experience and his um, storehouses of energy, he, he um, is expecting the Zionist movement to call him, call him, call him out and hire him to be in charge of one thing or another. And they don't utilize him. They don't use him. He doesn't find his place within the Jewish agency or within the religious Zionist enterprise. And he gets very disillusioned. He gets very bitter, um, very angry. And, and an angry person in the Middle East at the time was actually a perfect place to be because there were a lot of angry people and frustration was at a high in many circles. So here he is. Um, not, he didn't get what he, was, what he was planning on getting and he becomes very disillusioned. He's very disillusioned with Zionism. He does not get disillusioned with religion. On the contrary, he becomes more and more religious, and he gets closer and closer to the other side of the religious camp, that of the Eid HaCharedis. And he leaves religious Zionism and becomes, slowly but surely, not just um, ambivalent, but actually extremely anti-Zionist. And he believes in the Arab national aspirations, and he tries to figure out a way to get along with the Arabs and realizing the religious old Yishuv community's um, needs could be filled if they work together hand in hand with the Arabs. And that's, that's eventually what he does. And what he ultimately becomes is, is that it's a, you know, a match made in heaven to a certain extent because he was what the Eid HaCharedis was missing. Now, again, let's look at the context. We we'll leave Jacob Dehan's life for a second, and we look at the wider uh, context. The Jewish Agency for Palestine is the official agency representing the new Yishuv, the Chalutzim, the pioneers, the ones who are building up the land, Tel Aviv, and all the agricultural settlements across the country. This is the beginning of the Kibbutz movement. This is what's also called the Aliyah HaShlishit, the third Aliyah, which begins right after World War I in 1919, just around, just right before then when he arrives also. And um, 
and the Chaim Weitzman comes with with uh, financial aid for the decimation that was caused during World War One. Chaim Weitzman meets with members of the old Yishuv. The old Yishuv is the Eidah Haredis, which is eventually founded as the Eidah Haredis a couple of years later. Reb Chaim Zunnenfeld, primarily, he's the main Rav of that community, and eventually he's appointed the official Rav of the Eidah Haredis community. And they meet to, to, in order to secure the financial aid that the Jewish agency has for them. Chaim Weitzman uses this ob- as an opportunity to try to get them to, to implement reforms into the educational system. He wants them to switch from Yiddish to Hebrew um, and other all types of reforms in the economic system and in the religious reform. And Reb Chaim Zonnefeld and the community see it as a threat. And uh, there's a lot of bad, uh, bad feeling between the two parties. And more than that, Chaim Weitzman um, is, is convincing the British government, the mandatory Palestine, that the Jewish agency represents the entire Jewish community of Palestine. When in reality, Reb Chaim Zonnefeld and the Yedicharidists feel that they are not being represented by the Jewish agency, and they have to try to convince the British that they are another community there, or at least they're part of the community. At some, at some level, they have to, their voice has to be heard. The question is, how is their voice going to be heard? They have no experience in diplomacy, in the English language, in, in the big world out there. They're people of the old Yishuv. And here, here's a man who's a Western European intellectual, who's a journalist, who's a poet. By the way, he continues being a journalist and a poet. He's publishing, even after he moves to Eretz Yisrael, he's still publishing poetry and volumes of literature, and, 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 and he's a journalist for several prominent Dutch newspapers, and he's sending dispatches back, and he eventually meets Lord Northcliffe, who's a British magnate and owns newspapers and other stuff, and he meets him in Egypt and tells him how rotten the Zionist enterprise is, in his opinion, which makes big news in England because, you know, there is this all this tension between Arab national aspirations and Jewish national aspirations. And here's a Jew who's living in Israel, who was formerly a Zionist, who sees the reality on the ground, and he's convincing Lord Northcliffe that the Zionist enterprise is up to no good. And so it made big, big uh, sensational news. He hires him to write for the Daily Express in England. So he's writing for Dutch newspapers. He's writing for English newspapers. He's got diplomatic ties in Holland and England and France and who knows elsewhere. He knows loads of languages. He has amazing legal experience. He can be a legal counsel. And he's becoming more and more anti-Zionist. And he's willing to work together with Arab leaders. So it's simply, he becomes essentially the foreign minister of the Eide Haredis. Him and Reb Chaim Zanifel become extremely close and uh, and and uh, and Jacob Tehan leads them on a on a mission of uh, of uh, of gaining respectability by the English. He has to meet um, uh, later the King Abdullah in 1923 of Jordan, where they describe the needs and the reality of the old Yishev and explain that they they can work with them. They can work with Arab national aspirations and they can understand the needs of the old Yishev uh, Jewish community who does not want to create a Jewish state. And he eventually wants to go to England itself. And he had planned on July 1st, 1924, to going to England and explaining to the British government um, how the Eidah Haredi should be recognized as a separate Jewish community 
and they're not represented by the Jewish agency, and therefore they should recognize that as such, and there's two different Jewish communities which could essentially, I don't know about destroy, but severely damage the credentials of Chaim Weitzman and his Jewish agency. Here, they claim to be representing the entire spectrum of the Jews living in Palestine, and there comes along this very charismatic, well-spoken fellow who explains to them that there's an entirely other Jewish community who has different aspirations. They don't want a Jewish state. They have a whole, they want to work with the Arabs. Well, hey, it seems like there's another idea out there. So that becomes very problematic. And, um, and uh, eventually he is assassinated. And the day before he's supposed to leave to England, on June 30th, 1924, that's today, June 30th, and his Hebrew Yard side is Chavta Sivan, which is another couple of days. And he is assassinated. It's assumed to be the first political assassination since the time of the second Besamikdash, when it was unfortunately quite common. And um, here, the, the new uh, movement of nationalism, Jewish nationalism, had been peace, somewhat peaceful until this point. And here was the first political assassination it was probably carried out, or for sure, they did an investigation, the murderer was never apprehended, but the assumption among historians is, is that it was carried out, it was perpetrated by Avraham Tahomi, who was a member of the Haganah, later a founder of the Irgun, and ironically later someone who lived in America, New York, and had a diamond business, and moved back to Israel at some point, and then moved on to Hong Kong and China. And uh, interesting how some of the leaders in the early state had such a, um, you know, lived, moved on to other places. And uh, interestingly enough, in the news just two weeks ago, I saw that um, a letter surfaced that Avram Tomi wrote to two people who had interviewed him shortly before he died in the 1980s, that, and he testifies in this letter that um, he seems to say that he was the murderer, and he, then he testifies that it was done not just with the knowledge of the Haganah leadership, but actually with the orders of the Haganah leadership, meaning... Someone that, like in the likes of Yitzhak ben Svi, the second uh, president of the state of Israel, which caused a lot of problems. It's uh, someone who is a prestigious personality, a historian, a researcher, later a president of the state of Israel, and here he is involved in a political assassina- assassination. Now, this assassination shook the old Yish, shook the entire Yishuv, excuse me. Um, uh, you know, leaders of the secular Yishuv, they said, here we want our movement is now tainted with blood. Um, his Leviah was attended by uh, members of the British, members of the new Yishuv, and of course, Reb Chaim Zunnenfeld and the old Yishuv, Reb Chaim Zunnenfeld gave a hesped, and he publicly blamed the secular Zionists for the assassination, but that was the end of the Eide Charedis' chances of making any waves uh, by the British. Um, he's buried in Har Zaysim, but his memory has been somewhat forgotten um, by all involved, the Zionists definitely wanted to forget him, and uh, he was a, a problem and also an embarrassment, the fact that it was the first political assassination. The religious also uh, pushed his memory aside. His extremism was not accepted by all in the old Yishuv, and especially since the old Yishuv, the Yedicharedis in those days, was affiliated with the World Agudis Yisrael movement, and it was definitely too extreme for the Agudis Yisrael at the time. Um, um, yeah, Yaakov Dehan said to someone who he was walking with once in the streets of Yerushalayim, um, when someone passed him, someone passed him and saw him, they spit on the floor. And the person walking with him said, is that 
they, because they don't respect you that they spit like that? And he said, no, it's because they respect you they spit like that. If I would have been alone, they would have spit at me in the face. And that's how much he was disliked by people. And he was shot, as we said, um, he was actually leaving Mencha, Yisudav and Mencha, in Sharei Tzedek, on the old Sharei Tzedek building on Rechov Yafo, near Machne Yehuda Shuk, um, which today is this building belonging to the Israel Broadcasting Authority. And as he was leaving Mencha, he was shot by, probably by Avram Tahomi. In addition, he has been forgotten because even the Frum um, recoiled from his personality. He was a very problematic person in his personal life. He had some um, issues and, and personal preferences in his private life that would make him problematic to people like the Ada Haredes. And it was kind of surprising that the Ada Haredes supported him all along. And people like Rukhaim Zanafeld, because he was the type of person who in his personal life did not represent the ideals of the Ada Haredes, and which may be another reason why he has been, uh, for the most part, forgotten in those areas. Um, so... That's that's the story of Dr. Yaakov Dehan, a very enigmatic and interesting and somewhat odd uh, personality of that time. This was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. And you can subscribe now to the podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify. Don't miss an episode. You can also follow us at Twitter at jsoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.